Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, College Coach Conversation. Uh, It is spring in New England, officially, which is to say it's still winter, and I see no signs of spring yet, but I hear that it's coming. I know it well, and the reason I know is because decisions are coming in, and those come in in the spring, so congratulations to all seniors and their families The end is sort of near. The end of this part of process is near. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to be answering your questions. But before we get there, uh, with acceptance letters also come finance packages that may include financial aid, merit aid, might include both. Uh, Hopefully, it includes one or the other, especially if you need that. Um, But I'm very excited to welcome Nick Dukoff, who's the co-founder of Edmit, and Edmit has been on the show. We've had Nick and his um, co-founder Sabrina on the show as well to talk about a variety of things related to basically helping families make smarter decisions about the money that they're spending on college. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And and what we shared with our listeners today was just that we wanted to, we've been talking throughout the last few shows around about things like borrowing money for college. And in fact, in last week's segment, we talked a, a little bit about how much is too much to borrow. And today we thought it would be really helpful to get some perspective on trends that you guys are seeing uh, in the world of uh, college finance and the kinds of packages that people are getting and things like that. So I think that my first question for you is around um, financial aid letters. Any particular trends that you're seeing in those this year? So one trend that we've seen in recent years and unfortunately has continued into this year, and this isn't a happy trend, but we continue to see a lack of clarity in financial aid letters. We see loans mixed in with grants and scholarships inconsistent cost figures that don't line up with what schools post on their website, and just very different ways of explaining costs to students. Yeah, and and we um, we actually typically do a segment and, and have definitely done in the past. We've been doing this podcast for four years now, so I know they're in the archives, just around helping families figure out how the heck do you get everything in, you know, you've got maybe five acceptances and five different packages, and so you may need to, you want to compare them all on the same playing field. And how do you do that if the letters that you're getting from these colleges are so incredibly different, right? Like that's a big challenge, I think, for some families. Absolutely. There's some proposed legislation uh, in Congress to have what they call a shopping sheet, which would allow you to compare um, financial aid award letters, um, apples to apples. But right now it's very different. You know, some schools um, only include tuition, room, and board. Um, others don't include non-build costs, which can be several thousand dollars. Um, many schools include Parent PLUS loans as part of their aid package, but it's, that's not aid, that's a loan. Um, and some schools don't even include the full cost of attendance anywhere, um, making it hard for people to understand what they're actually going to pay. 
right? What is my bill going to be at the end of the day? And I think it's very few people who can sit down and just write a check for whatever the amount is. It's Finances are important to, I would say they're important to everyone. Even if you could afford to write the check, I think you still want to understand how much am I going to be paying here? Uh, and if you don't know how much you're going to be paying, how can you possibly decide if it's going to be worth it, right? Um, if you don't know what the cost is ultimately. Totally. Well, um, while that shopping sheet works its way through Congress, we're um, actually going to be doing a, our small part to help families understand their financial aid award letters a little better. We're um, starting a new initiative that's the Admit Transparency Badge. Um, and this will colleges will receive this uh, if their financial aid award letters have the full cost of attendance clearly stated. The loans are actually called loans. The loans and work study are clearly separated from grants and scholarships, that the net cost is calculated for the student and family, and that parent plus and private loans are not included in the award. I love that. I love that. That is very exciting. And um, I love that you guys are doing your part because, like you say, as it works its way through Congress, and right now it's hard to um, put much faith in much that's going on in the government, um, just given how much partisan arguing is is going on. So it's good to see that you guys have at least come up with um, something that might lead to a little bit of a solution without government interference or involvement, I guess would be a better way to put it. Um, but in the meantime, uh, something else that you had mentioned is an, an increase in tuition matching programs. So uh, what is a tuition matching program and, and where are you seeing this? Yeah, so um, there's a variety of demographic trends in the country where um, the college age-going population is, is shifting. And so what we see also, public and private schools are, are starting to become more competitive with each other as the state subsidies for public colleges decreases, the cost of public colleges are increasing and, and starting to approach the cost of private universities. So all these factors are leading to just more competition, healthy competition, which is good because, um, you know, families benefit from, from, from lower tuition. So an example is Oglethorpe University near Atlanta um, will match the tuition of any state flagship university for high-achieving students. So if you get into Georgia, Georgia State, uh, even nearby states, um, Oglethorpe will match that. Um, Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh, um, is going, which is private, uh, will charge Pennsylvania residents the same price as the local public universities and, in addition, offer them a $3,000 scholarship to boost. And, and these mm-hmm. discounts aren't just limited to private schools. There's publics like Michigan, South Dakota, Nebraska that um, offer uh, in-state tuition to, to neighboring uh, out-of-state students. Yeah, and actually, we um, for our listeners, we have talked about some of those different programs in uh, previous podcasts, so you might want to check that out. And one that I have been seeing lately, just because I recently was in Maine skiing, and I happened to see a notice about this, but um, University of Maine is a place where they will charge you, so I live in Massachusetts, but if my son decided that he wanted to go to school at the University of Maine, um, and he qualified, he could pay what we would pay at UMass, um, so we wouldn't necessarily pay UMaine uh, in-state tuition, but we would pay UMass's in-state tuition for him to attend that. So um, 
That's kind of, it's a, I agree. I, I think it's great to see colleges competing for um, students by offering them more reasonable pricing. Um, that can only be a win for people. Um, I, I think another trend that we're seeing is, uh, I guess this is not good, <laughs> but um, tell us a little bit about the, what you're seeing in terms of wildly different pricing um, for the same student at different schools. Yeah, so um, as, as you covered before and as I think more families are, are becoming familiar with, uh, no, no two students really pay the same price at college. And how it works on the college side, and uh, most recently before starting EdMed, I was a vice president at Northeastern University, colleges often hire uh, enrollment consultants to help them build a model that effectively um, puts a number on prospective applicants uh, that tries to assess that student's likelihood of enrolling if they're accepted and what amount of discounting through aid and scholarships would be kind of the um, Goldilocks amount in order to get that student to enroll should they uh, be accepted into the college. And some schools have uh, more sophisticated enrollment models and some schools have less sophisticated enrollment models. Some schools about way different attributes, such as did the student uh, visit on campus? Other schools value other attributes, such as did they click on an email? Mm-hmm. And, you know, all in all, they kind of bake this into their, their financial aid package. Um, this is a trend we're seeing. And so as a result, um, different colleges taking different approaches, colleges that otherwise are, are very competitive and have very similar um, published tuition and fees may ultimately end up giving the same student, you know, wildly different financial and merit aid offers. You know, we, we recently counseled one family who got into three um, Jesuit colleges in the Midwest, and the range for this family was 15000 plus or minus from very similar schools. Um, that's $60,000 difference over four years. That's just astronomical. Yeah, that is huge. And I, I think key there is just because that's the, the package the school is giving you doesn't mean, and this is why we talk about um, applying, appealing a, a financial aid award or negotiating for more merit money. We just did segments on each of those within the last couple of weeks um, because the price that they're giving you may not be the price that you have to pay. Um, they're, like you said, they're assessing what they think you will pay. And if they give you this amount, the likelihood is more that you will attend. But if you have another school that's offered you a deal that you're going to pay $15,000 less, there's certainly no harm in saying, hey, can is there more money available? There may not be, but they're not going to rescind your offer over asking. And um, so why not ask, right? I agree with you 100%. I was just at a conference with university presidents and heads of enrollment, and they were saying it's absolutely part of their expectation now that families are going to um, call and ask questions and, and perhaps request uh, additional pricing concessions. It's something that is just built into the model, for better or for worse, and um, you can only gain by asking. Right, right. I mean, the reality is that these are, for the most part, we're talking about for-profit, I'm sorry, not-for-profit institutions. However, they are still businesses, and this is just the price of doing business these days. So, um, tough if you are uncomfortable asking for more money, but you've got to just kind of let go of that and, and jump in there. Um, 
Another thing that we are seeing, uh, it's tough to call it a full-on trend at this point, but it certainly is something that I see parents concerned about, and that is um, schools' financial situations. And I think we're mostly seeing a concern when it comes to smaller schools, Um, but we have seen, especially here in Massachusetts, a few different schools announcing their closing. Um, And... So what are what are some things that you're hearing from parents about, you know, related to these types of concerns? Yeah. So the canary in the coal mine a, a year or so ago uh, was Sweetbriar in Virginia. And now they got a lifeline and, and so are continuing to operate. But this was headline news in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, something that just really hadn't happened a lot. Colleges just you know, don't close every day. And now you're starting to see that really accelerate Hampshire here in Mass, mm-hmm. uh, here um, in the New England area, Green Mountain College in Vermont. And like you said, these are generally, you know, fairly small private colleges, but they get outsized attention in the media because, you know, generally colleges stay around for hundreds of years. Um, yep. But it's, 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 it's um, getting harder um, for these smaller colleges to stay afloat. Um, especially in parts of the country where you've got these um, uh, headwinds in demographics. Yeah, and, um, you know, just it's it's a little scary to imagine that you might enroll in a school. Um, do you have any advice for families who are concerned about this? Maybe their child is looking at some of a small private school and it maybe they feel like, well, it seems healthy enough, but how do we, how do we tell any resources that you would send families to? Yeah. So um, similar to the conversation we had earlier, um, the government is, 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 starting to take action. The Board of Higher Education here in Massachusetts, uh, where we're based, um, is looking into developing um, a list of colleges that um, are at risk. They're working through the um, criteria in which they will determine that list. They're very concerned about that because they don't want to have colleges on that list that then leads to um, an acceleration of of um, a decline in enrollment for those colleges that are on that list. They haven't announced that yet. So again, in the absence of that government intervention, which I do think will be a very good thing, um, EdMed is stepping in and we're working on building our own list. We're actually doing that with a team um, at Brandeis University uh, that will develop uh, a list of colleges that we think might be at risk given their trends in enrollment, their endowment, Moody's rating and other features. Interesting. What do you anticipate that coming online soon, within the year, within the next two years? Any sense of that at this point? We're 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 working diligently to get it out before decision deadlines um, at the oh, end wow. of April. But um, you know we're 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 sensitive to the same things that the Massachusetts Board of Higher Education is, and want to make sure we get it right. Got it. Got it. Well, that's great. I mean, that's sooner than I anticipated. So that will be something really important to keep an eye out for. The last, um, the last trend that you had mentioned um, prior to us getting on on this segment today was just gap year and deferment packages. And this is interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys are seeing um, because we're seeing some stuff around this as well. But I, I wonder if we're talking about the same thing. So what are you guys seeing? Yeah, so colleges like Princeton, Tufts, UNC Chapel Hill, 
um, are, are, are offering financial support uh, to admitted students that want to defer their enrollment for a gap year, you know, a year that they can travel, volunteer, or, um, you know, kind of pursue other interests that they have. And we're seeing these, these deferments um, and financial aid range from anywhere between five, ten, even $15,000. Hmm. That is not the trend at all that I was thought you were going to be talking about. I mean, we've seen just some some colleges making conditional um, offers where they want the student to take a gap year or enroll a semester later than the student originally intended to. And I, so I thought you were going to be talking about something like that. So that's really interesting. Is it to encourage students to take a gap year or is that what you're seeing? Or is it more, um, hey, we'd love to have you. We want, we'd like to you to enroll in a year. And so here's some funding for you to go do something interesting with that time. I think it's a mix of what you were describing as well. I, I, I think that um, once a college has determined that a student is admissible, they want that student to matriculate. And mm-hmm. in some cases, it's a load management issue. A college may, you know, kind of think they, they're over-enrolling and so um, want that student to matriculate next year. Or, um, you know, in the case of a student, you know, that they really want um, to recruit, um, you know, they want to provide a certain amount of flexibility. Um, so I think in, 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 in both cases, there this is the college, again, just tuning into that that um, student as a customer. And this is, you know, a broader trend, which is used to be ivory tower, student and family, um, and, and, you know, a big distance between the kind of perceived power between those relations. And now I think colleges are really trying to be seen as um, more friendly, personal, and um, customer friendly. Got it. Well, that is a trend I think we can all get behind. And and Nick, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I also want to encourage our listeners to check out Edmit. It's uh, edmit.me is where you'll find it. And um, as Nick mentioned, there is some interesting new stuff coming and um, may be there in time to help you guys out as you are making final decisions. So thanks again, Nick. Thanks so much, Beth. All right. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're getting to your questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college and most importantly what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application we've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college most into their top choice schools so make the decision to come work with college coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to jump right into the questions that you've been sending us over the past month. If you are interested in getting your questions answered on air, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And joining me, as is fairly common these days, is my colleague, Kathy Ruby, who is a former financial aid officer at St. Olaf. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. I think the only one right now who might have worse weather than uh, me here in New England is you out there in Minnesota. Um, but uh, that's really irrelevant today. I just am happy that someone is sharing my pain of <laughs> spring yeah, being It's winter. starting to get better. It's getting there. Okay. It'll get there eventually. All right. We have a, a ton of questions and I would like to get through as many as possible. So first one for you today, it comes to us from Barb and Barb asks, are there any schools where our financial well-being might help him get into the college? Ha ha. So Barb must be waiting for some college decisions, right? And trying to make yep. some, <clears throat> trying to anticipate what might end up happening. Um, so the answer is sometimes yes, or it depends, right? Our favorite answer. Um, but yep. I think what Barb is asking about is uh, some colleges are uh, what is called need aware or need sensitive, um, which is the opposite of need blind. So you'll hear colleges refer to themselves as being need blind. And that means they do not care about your finances when they make a decision about whether or not to admit your child. Um, the schools that tend to be need-blind are usually the wealthier, uh, best-endowed scholarships, but also then just a lot of other, uh, a lot of other colleges actually can be need-blind. Um, they just don't make any promises about meeting your need fully once you are admitted. Mm -hmm. At any rate, there are some colleges, and they're mostly going to be private. Uh, I'm going to generalize a bit, say private, maybe second-tier colleges or or even top-tier private colleges. It just depends where they are need-aware or need-sensitive. And so that means essentially they have a limited financial aid budget, and they most of the time they're trying to meet full need for everyone they admit, So they have to be need aware so that they have a way to control their financial aid budget. And so what that means is usually for the top, or the top, sorry, usually for the top bottom 10 to 15%, (laughs) sorry, I kept saying it. So usually the bottom 10 to 15% of their applicant pool, where a student might be on the edge of being admitted, in that case, if the student needs a lot of money, Uh, It may be that the financial aid budget has run out, and so that student might not be admitted because they're going to be they're going to need a lot of money. But on the flip side, which if I'm understanding Barb's question, where she's saying, "Are there any schools where our financial well-being?" So I'm assuming Barb doesn't have much financial need. 
the opposite, it, it can be true that if you are well off and your child is sort of on the edge of being admitted, a college might actually admit your student because they know they're not going to need much aid and it's a lot of revenue for the, for the school. So the answer is yes, mm-hmm. that can happen, but it really depends on the colleges that your student is considering. It doesn't happen at most colleges, but it happens at a few here and there. Yeah, and I think the key there is just that you're talking about students on the bubble um, yeah. and versus students who are already very competitive, going to get accepted. Um, it doesn't mean a student who is nowhere near what they want in terms of admissibility suddenly becoming admissible because you can afford um, exactly. to, to pay. Yeah. All right. All right. So I have one for you that's a long one, but it's a good question. So Todd is asking, so he has a question about current seniors. So my son has his first early action acceptance. He's awaiting several other EA and regular decision decisions. But his EA acceptance is a great school, not in his top three, but he'd be thrilled to go there. And his top three are all REACH schools and regular decision decisions due to his choice or deferral from EA. Uh, We weren't expecting the deluge of other things to do for this one school while he waits to hear from everyone else. He's been invited to an early admitted student day, which we'll attend. He's been invited to apply for specific dorms and learning communities requiring essays, which he's currently working on. And he's been invited to apply for potential non-need-based scholarships, some of which require applications. So Todd is saying this breather that you've mentioned for seniors is disappearing. How important is it for students to complete this stuff now? Or can they wait for all their decisions in March and have a better sense of where they'll enroll before jumping on these things? Yeah, so I guess the breather really is more about uh, the application work. But you're right, as you describe this, there's plenty of things still to do sometimes. I think a couple of things are key here. One of the things you mentioned early on is that this is a great school and he'd be thrilled to go there. And so with that in mind, it probably is going to be more important to do some of these things than if this was a school that he for sure wasn't going to go to or was really not super excited about. And I would argue, of mm-hmm. course, shouldn't be on your list. If you're not going to go there, you're not excited about it. I've say this till I'm blue in the face, but what good is a safety if you will not go? So find one that you like. Um, anyway, uh, I think that it also is dependent upon a few other things, right? So you said that the others are all reaches. Um, he got a deferral, it sounds like, in there, which means that, yep. you know, that it's no sure bet that those reaches are one, you know, those top three are going to come through. Um, so you may want to jump on. I, I like the idea that you went to the admitted student, the early admitted student day. I think it's great to kind of get that out of the way. Um I think applying for the specific dorm and learning communities there, I think the big issue is I'd be looking at what are the deadlines for that. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that seems like something that could probably wait unless they're saying we need it by X deadline and you won't have heard from the other schools or they need it by April 4th and that will give you only maybe three days to work on it um, after (laughs) you hear from everything else, right? Um, Yeah. The one thing, though, that I might hop on would be, especially if that's important to you, would be the non-need-based scholarships. If those require right. applications, I think you want to hop on those immediately. 
Um, you don't want to wait because waiting in that case could mean that you miss out on extra money. And who wants to miss out on extra money? I have not met that person. Have you? (laughs) Right. Well, and you want to position yourself well in case you do get some non-need-based scholarships. You might be able to use those to get more money from someone else or, or, you know, you might get more from them by meeting all those deadlines for sure. It's exactly right. So I guess the answer is, if it wasn't so interesting to him, if the school wasn't so interesting to him, I might do the admitted student day because, again, Mm -hmm. good to get that out of the way um, and see, you know, maybe meet some potential fellow students, all of that. But if he's pretty sure or if he has other acceptances in hand that he likes more or he's got still he's still going to hear from some safeties that he likes more or some match schools that he likes more maybe you do hold off but uh, again when when it comes to scholarship and potential for more money i would probably hop on that right away yes and it's it's also interesting to note here sorry not to drag this on but the college is clearly trying to yield him too right they're inviting him yes. to things they're trying to show him all the wonderful things that are happening at their school which is the other reason for early action besides helping the student find out sooner. It also gives the college a chance to to sell themselves for a longer period of time. Right, and I think probably one of the hopes is by getting your son more invested in attending, by doing all of these things, they Mm -hmm. may stand a better chance of him coming when uh, he hears from, regardless of what happens with the other schools. So there's that as well. Uh, Okay, next question comes to us from Tom, who asks... How come the student loan program is so limited? That's really not going to cover much of the cost. Tom, you're right. (laughs) It's a good question. So I believe the limit that Tom is talking about is in the federal direct subsidized and unsubsidized student loan, which a dependent undergraduate, you know, traditional dependent undergraduate student can borrow $5,500 in their first year. 6500 in the second year, and then 7500 each year, the junior and senior year. So they can borrow a total of 27000 over four years. And if they attend for a fifth year, uh, the most that they can borrow additionally is $4,000. So the most you can borrow as a dependent undergraduate student is 31000 over four years. Um, <clears throat> and I think the reason... And so, I mean, that's really a drop in the bucket for many families, or it covers one year at an in-state public university. But the reason that the student loan program is limited is because it's a federal student loan program. So increasing those limits takes an act of Congress. Um, so, And it costs money because when the government provides those loans, they guarantee them so that if the student defaults, the government is ends up having to repay them. Um, the government is covering the subsidy on the interest for um, for subsidized student loans. So the program is expensive. And to increase the limits uh, increases the federal government's bill. So we know that that can be difficult in, in certain political times. Um, the other reason I think they limit it is because the government wants to try to maintain a good chance that they're going to be repaid. So they don't want to increase those limits so much that um, that students can't pay back their federal loans. And so one of the rules of thumb you'll hear about how much a student should borrow for a particular degree is that they shouldn't borrow more than what they think they're going to make in their first year out of whatever program they're in. 
So $27,000 for a bachelor's degree is probably a pretty safe bet. So that's the other reason the government doesn't increase the limits. They're not really willing to risk uh, lending a lot more money to undergraduate students. Um, So it's not going to cover much of the cost. There are private educational loans. There's a federal parent loan that's available. Um, Some states have loans that are available that generally will require uh, that the student have a cosigner. Same with those private loans. So uh, most of the time, 99% of the time, for a traditional dependent student, anything they borrow beyond that $27,000 will involve the parent in one way or another. But I think we've covered all those different financing options, I think, in last week's podcast, possibly, or sometime in the last couple weeks. Yeah, last week we talked about uh, how much is too much to borrow. So that would also yeah. speak to directly to what you're talking about here. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All Thank right. You. Okay. So Svetlana is asking, a friend recommended your podcast and I started listening. The most recent episode suggested listening at a minimum in the calendar year of the application process. Uh, so in other words, senior year. Does that mean that every calendar year the podcast hits all the relevant bits? So otherwise, your archive is so extensive that I'm not sure where to start. My students are a junior and a freshman. <laughs> so this is an operations question. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, thank you for sending it in, Svetlana, because we actually have been doing this podcast now for four years. We just hit our four-year anniversary in early February. Wow. Uh, and I will tell you, I find our archives kind of overwhelming as well. And so we are <laughs> looking into how can we make it Um, a little bit easier for people to find podcasts that might be relevant. Um, And uh, we may be doing some blog posts that will help to identify some blogs or some podcasts that you can go back and listen to with different um, about different subjects. So you might want to subscribe to our blog if you don't already. That is also already free. Uh, Also free, excuse me. And you can find that at blog.getintocollege.com. But um, I would say that, yeah, when we first started, I think we, you know, we started this with a 13 episode commitment. And now here we are four years on and we still do this podcast weekly. And what we have discovered in that time is that absolutely there are topics that are evergreen that we're going to need to hit and cover every single year because every year there are new families going through this process. And so I would like to think that, yes, we are hitting all the relevant bits um, every year. And um, that if you're listening in the calendar year that you probably will get pretty much what you need to out of the podcast. Some of the things that maybe will we won't cover every single year might be, you know, we try to do to in the fall talk through um, some of the different supplemental essays at um, colleges that are we find to be more popular. And uh, maybe some of those questions are a little trickier, but we don't talk about the same questions every year. So if a school hasn't changed their questions, you might go back to the previous fall and see if maybe we covered them then. And then you can also search Uh, in the archive by hashtag. So if your child is working on, let's say, the supplement for Lehigh, you might search hashtag Lehigh in the archives, and it should pull up all the podcasts where Lehigh was discussed on on the podcast. And the only time we probably would have put it in the title would be if we talked through their supplemental uh, essay on that that show. Mm -hmm. So that's another way. 
maybe you could check out the archives. Um, and But yeah, if you basically just start listening now, hopefully everything you will need to know or a lot of what you will need to know, we will cover um, as you go through this process with your um, junior and freshman. Great. All right, we're going to take a, a quick break. And then when we come back, Kathy, we'll get to another question. This one comes from Elaine. So that'll be a teaser. Uh, uh, and so we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll get to Elaine's question. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are going to jump right back in. Just before the break, I said that Elaine had a question for you, Kathy. So here it is. Our EFCA... You ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Our EFC on the FAFSA was $20,000. My daughter got into our in-state university, whose total costs are $30,000. They didn't give us any aid besides a student loan. Why is this? All right. That's a great question. So what Elaine has described is, um, or, or what's implied in her question, is she's, she's seeing that her family has financial need but the state university didn't give her child any money. And so the way we know that Elaine has financial need or Elaine's student has financial need is that the way that colleges calculate financial need is they take their annual total cost and and they calculate this each year when you complete the FAFSA. Um, So they look at their total costs and then they subtract the expected family contribution that's calculated on the FAFSA and the difference is your financial need. Um, And families hear about this because high school financial aid nights, everybody talks about your EFC and having financial need. Um, But it turns out what really matters is uh, not just your financial need, but how much money does the college have to give to families in your need category. 
So in Elaine's case, <clears throat> her financial need is $10,000 a year because the college costs 30000 and her EFC was 20000 I think she's giving us some round numbers there, but that's, that's good. Um, and so, so what has happened, and this is true at a lot of public universities, um, they may have, I mean, lower-income families, and I'm talking about families where their ESC is anywhere from zero to $6,000 a year, um, those families with those kinds of ESCs will generally qualify for um, federal, a federal Pell Grant, uh, maybe a state grant, depending on the state that you live in. So that's what the public university has to give to help those families. And then public universities tend not to have as much institutional aid as private colleges do. And so this public university might have some institutional aid, but they're probably targeting it toward lower-income families. Um, and then they may have some institutional aid that they're targeting in the form of merit aid to out-of-state students to try to attract out-of-state students. Um, mm -hmm. But often it is families sort of in the middle at state universities um, who get caught because that public university just doesn't have enough money to give to you, even though you do have financial need. Um, so that's why it's important to be applying to a variety of colleges. Um, in this case, um, you know, sometimes a private college might give enough aid that the cost is pretty comparable to attending that in-state public university, or sometimes even better, uh, depending on the school and depending on the student and um, how much money that college has to give. So one of the ways you can try to get at this ahead of time so that, you, this, uh, so that you're at least anticipating what's going to happen is that all colleges are required to have a net price calculator on their website where you can go in and enter your financial information and the college will give you an estimate of how much money they might give you eventually when you go through the financial aid process. So at least um, you can know ahead of time what things might end up looking like. But, but really the bottom line here is that the State University didn't give Elaine's student money because they just didn't have any money to give. Um, they don't promise to meet everybody's full need. So, Right. Got it. Which is why sometimes it's good to apply to private schools as well because there might be more money available and yeah. it might be cheaper to attend a private school than the state school. Yes. I've Not learned always, that one. but sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, so your next question is from Sammy. What's the best way to include a publication in my Common App? I had a research paper published in the Concord Review. Congratulations. Um, it was a lot of work outside the classroom, but I loved it, and I'd like to show potential colleges my work. <clears throat> I've seen a suggestion to use the additional info section to include an abstract of the paper, but I'm afraid it will get lost there. I'd like to send a reprint along with my app. Is that appropriate? I understand that the admissions team won't have time to read it, <clears throat> but at least they can see the work that I put into it. Okay, Sammy. Well, here's the thing. If they don't read it, they're not going to see the work you put into it. So <laughs> what I will tell you is this is a situation where you've seen a suggestion and it is actually the best suggestion, which is to include it as an abstract of the paper in the additional information section is actually much more likely that it will get lost if you send along a reprint with your app than if you mm -hmm. include it in the additional information section because the additional information section is part of the application. So as an when you're reading an application, that is going to come up as part of your application. Whereas if you send it in as something extra and... 
I'm a school that maybe doesn't accept something extra or I don't have time to read something extra, I'm not even going to see it most likely. Um, But if it's Mm -hmm. in your application, I will. So I would say that it is so difficult, I know, because, and I have a high school student in my house right now and I've been working with them for years and years and before that I was reading their applications Um, I know how hard you work and I know how proud you are of the things that you accomplish. And rightly so. It is amazing and impressive what some students are capable of doing and what they have done, um, often just on their own initiative because it was something that was really interesting to them. And you want to somehow share all of it with the admissions committee. But the reality is that you want to be very thoughtful in what you share and how you share it to make it as consumable as possible. So another example of this would be students who have done so much outside of the classroom that they have a resume that's five pages long. I've been Mm -hmm. working for, I don't really totally want to give away my age, but I've been working for a while, (laughs) a long time, more than 20 years. And my resume is two pages long, front and back. Mm -hmm. And I only... You know, and before, until recently, it was really only one page. So as a high school student, you should not have a resume that is that long. You want to be really, you want to get it all down to the absolute bare minimum where you can convey what you have accomplished in as um, succinct a manner as possible and make it easy for the admissions officer to see it and to appreciate the, uh, you know, what you accomplished. If the school is asking if you have any papers like this, and, and if you are invited to submit it, by all means, please do that. But for the most part, they're not going to invite you to do this, in which case, doing a nice, succinct abstract and popping that in the additional information section is going to be the absolute best way uh, to let the colleges know uh, about what you've accomplished. All right. Really quickly, Kathy, I think we have time for another. Let me just double check here. No, no. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think we have time for probably, um, well, more than just the next one. This one comes to us from Vicki, who says, why do I have to report the value of the 529 plans I have for my other kids? How will they know if I don't? Question. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's a good question. Um, but the, the reason you have to report them is that they are considered a parent asset that's available to help pay for college. Um, and, and 529 plans are easily transferred among beneficiaries. So they're, the way most people set them up is that the owner is the parent and then the child is the beneficiary, and you can have three accounts, for you know one for each of your children. Um, now, you in your mind may not be planning to spend your younger child's 529 plan on the older child, but you have the ability to do that. And so um, the formula, the, the FAFSA and the formula that's used to calculate the expected family contribution is trying to look at your entire financial situation um, and your entire net worth to determine <clears throat> how much eligibility you have. And remember, too, that once those other kids are enrolled in college, um, once the parent contribution is calculated then it's divided among the number of kids in the household in college. So they do try to take into account if you have more than one child in college at a time. Um, Now, as for how will they know if I don't, um, you know, they may not know if you don't report them. However, when you sign the FAFSA, and these days you sign it electronically, you are signing that you have 
presented all of the information to the best of your knowledge, um, <clears throat> and um, and you are subject to, and you know what, I haven't looked at this in years, but I think it's a $10,000 fine and a prison sentence of maybe up to 10 years um, if you knowingly mislead uh, the government and the school on that form. So, you know, they may not ever find out, but you are you are falsifying information on a federal form um, if you don't provide that information. And just one clarification about 529 plans also. Uh, sometimes parents think that if they save in a 529 plan, the college will say, okay, you have that much in a 529 plan, so you can pay for college. And that's actually not the case. 529 plans are just reported in the category of what investments do parents have. So the college actually doesn't know whether your investment is a 529 plan or just a regular brokerage account or what it might be. So there's nothing special about 529 plans in the information that you report, but it is true that the instructions tell you you do have to report all of your 529 plans um, for all of your kids. All so right. There you go. Thank you, Kathy. All right. So the next question is from Eddie. Um, as you know, college essay topics were released in mid-January, and my question to you is the following. Apply Texas changed topic A to read, tell us, to tell us, now paraphrasing your story. Describe an obstacle or challenge you encountered in your high school career. My question is uh, the phrase high school career. Does that time period start summer leading into ninth grade and up to the present in a high school student's life? Does it start when a student begins his or her education process, essentially elementary school? What's your take on that phrase and time period? I think that the use of the in your high school career to me is pretty clear that they mean high school. So it's certainly possible that a student may have encountered an obstacle way back in elementary that is now impacting high school. But I think what they are looking for there is more something that has happened in high school. So if something mm-hmm. happened back in elementary school and I, you know, I'm picking something that I would not have a student necessarily write about, but I don't know, you didn't do well in math that year and as a result you weren't promoted to the more advanced math the next year and then as a result of all of that, you are not going to get to calculus by the time you're a senior even though you really wanna be an engineer and you've heard you need calculus, right? That mm-hmm. is, I don't really think that's something they're looking to understand you now um, more of who you've been since you've started high school um, more about who the student is who they're going to be getting if you are admitted so in my opinion um, you know every you never know you'd have to I'd have to read the essay but I would say I would encourage students to stick to high school career and and they're pretty clear in that phrasing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all, all right, Kathy, we have time for um, a, a one minute answer here. And I think you can probably give it. Then this question comes to us from yeah. Gina, who says, um, I would like to know if applying early action would affect merit scholarships. Uh, the answer to that is it depends. So we're talking about early action, which is non-binding. But most of the time, yes, applying early action does affect merit scholarships because many times, uh, most of the time, colleges consider you for merit scholarships automatically as part of the admission decision, but the most common requirement is that there's a special deadline to apply for admission in order to get fully considered for merit scholarships, and that deadline is often the early action deadline. 
So applying early action can sometimes help your ability to get a merit scholarship. It would never hurt your uh, consideration for a merit scholarship. Awesome. I thought that would be a simple answer. And of course, then if we throw in there, because I can't help myself, early decision might be something altogether different because schools use merit scholarships to lure students to campus. And if you have already committed to them, it is possible that therefore they would say, well, we don't need to give the student a merit scholarship because they've already committed to us. However, there are exceptions to every rule. And I do think there are still colleges out there who give merit aid even to early decision students. Um, I know Northeastern is one of them because we have a former Northeastern AO in our midst and she has shared that with us. So, um, Kathy, thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate it and fun as always to go through these questions with you. Yes, happy to help, Beth. Have a great day. All right. Uh, Next week, Sally is going to be here, um, and her topics for the day include applying to public institutions from out of state, um, college finance for older parents, what are some of those challenges, and how how to choose the best college from the schools where you were accepted. Um, And that can be challenging if you don't get into your dream school, um, but you're still going to have some good options. And of course, you don't want to throw out college altogether um, just because the number one choice didn't come through. So how do you deal with that and then focus on what your options are? Um, If you would like to get your questions answered, we are running a little low on the admissions question. So makes me feel like you all don't love me. So send them in. (laughs) Gettingin.voiceamerica.com gmail.com even if you don't love me and you have questions you can send those in you don't it doesn't have to be a measure of your your love and attachment to this podcast um we do have the great archives i did as as um, svetlana noted they can be a little bit tricky to navigate because there are so many shows in the archive at this point but um like i said if you're looking for something particular slap a hashtag in the search engine and see what it pulls up for you um also lots of other great free ways to interact with us uh as i mentioned earlier you might want to subscribe to our blog blog.getintocollege.com follow us on facebook we are there we post a lot there um and you can always sign up for free downloads of the show on itunes and hey we haven't gotten ratings there in a while so if you want to rate us while you're there we would appreciate it and don't forget we're here every thursday 4 p.m eastern and 1 p.m pacific Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.